At Easter time, we think of Calvary, and we think of the resurrection on Sunday. And these are things to celebrate, and we're so happy to do that. But I want to look at Calvary today from a little different perspective. And I hope it will be very meaningful to you and helpful in life. In the world in which we live, there is tremendous pain and suffering. You don't have to do a lot of recall as we sit here to think of the past week, what has come in the news, or maybe what came by a phone call to you, or maybe what you heard from a neighbor or someone in the family. There is lots of pain and suffering. The question has to be asked, is God detached from it? Where is God in all this pain and suffering? Is God like Buddha? If you go to the east, you will find shrines of Buddha. I saw them when I was in Japan. And when you go there, they have large statues of Buddha sitting there. His legs are crossed, his arms are folded, his eyes are closed. He has a remote look on his face as if he is detached from all the agonies of the world. Does Calvary give us any insight at all into God and his attachment or detachment to pain and suffering? Think with me for a moment of Jesus on the cross, lonely, twisted, tortured, nails through his hands and feet, a back lacerated from the whip, his limbs wrenched, his brow bleeding, his mouth dry and intolerably thirsty. Think of him plunged in God-forsaken darkness. Does this describe a God detached from pain and suffering? John Stott, in his book, the, Christ, the Cross of Christ, has a story in it written by P.T. Forsyth called The Long Silence. It's a play. And here is how it's recorded in the book, The Cross of Christ. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not with cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering, snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. In another group, a Negro boy lowered his collar. What about this? He demanded showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with swollen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he permitted in this world. 
How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they all said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he had suffered the most. A Jew, a black man, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a thalidomide child. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they had endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served his sentence. It is important to understand when we open the pages of this book that though this Bible mentions suffering on nearly every page, its purpose in mentioning it is more practical than philosophical. This is what I mean. Its concern is not to explain the origin or purpose of suffering as much as it is to teach us how to overcome suffering when it is here. We are reasonable people created with the capacity to think. We make choices, moral decisions. We ask questions. And in many ways, we wish we had a book. We could open it and say, why did I lose my job? Why did my child suffer this way? Why has this affliction come upon our home? Why does that person hate me? Why, why, why? And we long for answers to those types of questions. And though the Bible gives us a little bit of information, it does not satisfy a thinking individual when those questions dominate the landscape. What the Bible does give us is the answer to how we can be victorious even in the midst of suffering. The New Testament believers suffered much. They were persecuted. They were harassed. 
Many of them lost their lives. Yet, when you open the pages of this book, you find victory, 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 victory in Christ, victory in God, hope in life, strength to move forward. And they did. And so today, when we look at the concept of suffering, let us settle this. God is not detached from our suffering. Jesus became flesh. Jesus became blood. And Jesus knows the suffering of a human being. And today, we're going to open his word and we're going to see how it is we can overcome suffering. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. If you are unfamiliar with your Bible, go to the very back of your Bible, to the book of Revelation, and come forward to the left, and you will go through several books, and you will come to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are looking at verse 18 and following. 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable. <clears throat> if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, for what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer for it, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Now note, this is not talking about illness. This is not talking about losing your job. But the principles that we're going to learn here apply to all manner of suffering. Verse 21 says, for to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was guile found in his mouth. We must pause here. Jesus committed no sin, yet Jesus suffered. <clears throat> We must be extremely careful when talking to family or friends about suffering. We have no right, no authority, and no knowledge to be able to tell them why they are suffering. Jesus suffered. He never sinned. We can't sit there and say this is because of sin in your life. Listen, if there was a direct cause and effect from every sin that we've committed in our lives, simply we would all be dead. We cannot say your suffering is a result of sin. We don't know that. And we have no right to heap that type of guilt and pain and sorrow upon someone who is already suffering. Jesus suffered, but he never sinned. So let's take that one off the table. There is suffering in the world, 
and suffering comes upon people who are serving God and people who aren't serving God. Suffering comes upon rich people. Suffering comes upon poor people. Suffering is an equal opportunist. Everybody suffers at some level. It happens to us all. He goes on to say, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. What did Jesus do when he suffered? Watch this. Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we were healed. Jesus, when he suffered, committed himself to the one who judges righteously. God, take care of it for me. Jesus, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. Jesus, when he was threatened, did not threaten in return. He committed himself to God. Suffering will come in our lives. It is unavoidable while we live here on earth. But we, in the midst of suffering, can have victory. We commit ourselves to God. Let's uh, continue this thought. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. Go to the left to the next book. Excuse me, you'll go past James first. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. When hard times come, turn to God. When hard times come, look to Jesus. He has been through them. He understands them. He has experienced it. And He has promised us that He will never, ever leave us. He will never, ever forsake us. He is the God of all comfort. And He is the one that we are to turn to. Now, suffering is used as a tool from the devil. Primary purpose is to get us so discouraged we walk away from God. I have heard people say, I have thought the same thing. When suffering is taking place around me or in my life, I have thought, I wouldn't allow my dog to go through this. Why is God allowing me to go through this? We have these doubts. We have these concerns. We are to turn toward God instead of away. And when we do that, when we seek after Him, 
we are going to find something we could not find any other way, and that is a God whose arms are open wide to comfort and love us and help us through difficulties we never dreamt someone could help us through. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, a very curious verse, one for contemplation. In verse 10 it says, For it was fitting for Him, this is speaking of God the Father, for whom all things and by whom all things are made, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the author of their salvation perfect through sufferings. It's referring God the Father talking about God the Son, saying that Jesus became perfect through suffering. How could that be? Look at Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. It says, Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus became perfect? I thought Jesus was perfect. Jesus never sinned. How is it he became perfect? Well, the word is teleos in the Greek. It has like a telescope. It's an expanding thing. It's not the idea of perfection where somebody arrives at a state and they remain there. It is talking about maturation. It is talking about someone that matures. And it is saying this, that though Jesus was sinless, His experience with God grew deeper and deeper and deeper. It is describing a process that made Jesus perfect. His sufferings were the testing ground in which His obedience became full-grown. Suffering comes. Temptations are there. Will I get better? Will I get bitter? Am I going to serve God? Am I going to walk away from God? And Jesus, we are told, when suffering came upon Him, it developed in Him a maturity as He expressed obedience in all that suffering. So we see the Bible is teaching us suffering will come. Let us endure it with patience looking unto Jesus. And let us seek to be holy and serve God through every aspect of it. Let's go to the right now to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, it's describing a text that's hard to understand, but many have experienced it and know it is true. James 1 verse 2, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. There is something about suffering that causes us to grow spiritually. It causes us to mature. I walked a mile with gladness. She chattered all the way, but I was none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sadness. Not a word said she, but oh, the things I learned when sorrow walked with me. 
So where does suffering come from? Some say from God. Some say from the devil. What does the Bible say? Well, you can go to the book of Job, and you can find that suffering came to Job from the devil. The devil and God had a conversation. God said, where have you been? And Lucifer said, I've been roaming the earth. And God said, what do you think of my servant Job? God said, he's faithful in all things. Lucifer said, well, sure. Everything he touches, you bless. Turn to gold for him. Let me have him, and I'll turn him away from you. God said, okay. So Job lost his children, lost his livestock, lost his servants. And his wife is saying, give up and die. And Job says, look, I came into the world naked. I'm going out of the world naked. Though he slay me, I'm going to serve him. And so Lucifer and God conversed again. And God said, what do you think of my servant Job? And Lucifer said, yeah, yeah, but let me touch him. Let me add his person. And God said, okay. And Job broke out in boils. And he sat in ashes and the pain was so bad, he was taking broken pieces of pot and scraping the pus off his body. And then his three friends showed up to encourage him. But each of those three friends ultimately are rebuked by God because their theology is saying, this would not have happened to you, Job, unless you had sinned. There is sin in your life, and this is why it's happening. We cannot say that. Are you with me? We have no authority to say that when people are suffering. We don't know why it's in their life. What we do know is this. If we really understood and if we really cared, we would draw near to people and comfort them and encourage them. They're not alone. God understands. God hears. Let's pray. Let's seek for deliverance. And one thing we do know clear, this is very clear in the Bible, God will stop something. He sets a border. The Bible says that no temptation will come upon us that we are not able to bear by the grace of God. God will stop it. Where does it come from? It's life in this world. Now, the reason I want to spend some time with this is because we're going to transition just ever so slightly. And if we're not together theologically, if we're not standing on the same platform, you're going to walk out of here confused. I want to show you how God can turn the suffering that comes upon us into victory for us. How God uses it. I'm not saying He gives it, but when it's there, how God can take it and make us something we could never be without experiencing it. Let's go to three illustrations. This will not take us long. 
The first one is found in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Suffering comes. God can use suffering to draw us closer to Him and teach us things about Him that we would never know otherwise. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved or distressed by various trials. Watch this. That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We had a picture of a father disciplining his child. We have a picture of a metal worker refining gold. Gold is placed in a container and put into a superheated furnace. And as the gold liquefies, the impurities that are in the gold will be burned off from it. It's called dross. And as the dross is burned off from it, the gold is ultimately removed and it is pure. It is in a very pure state and it is placed into the mold that it is supposed to be and it is pure gold. This is not pleasant. Yet, the purity that comes at the end of it is indescribable. We have another illustration, and that is found in John chapter 15. The Gospel of John chapter 15. Jesus has just left the upper room with his 
followers, 11 of them, they're walking across the valley, headed up to Gethsemane. And while they're walking, they pass a vine. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. We get that. Cut it off, throw it in a pile, it'll be burned in the day of judgment. But watch this. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. This doesn't seem reasonable. Already bearing fruit, already connected, yet it is being pruned. That is painful so that it will bear more fruit. We have a father disciplining his child, a metal worker refining gold, a gardener pruning his vine. All three metaphors describe a negative process. Disciplining the child, refining the metal, and pruning the vine, these are negative processes. But all three underline the positive result. The child's good, the metal's purity, the vine's fruitfulness. Suffering fosters perseverance. Suffering develops humility and suffering purifies faith. Should we pray for suffering? No. It will come unannounced. It will come unwanted. It will come inconveniently. It will come. You don't have to pray for it. What we should pray for is a faith to serve God through it and to become the type of person he wants us to become despite the suffering that is taking place in our lives. Margaret Clarkson wrote a hymn, O Father, you are sovereign, the Lord of human pain, transmuting earthly sorrows to gold of heavenly gain all evil overruling, as none but conqueror could. Your love pursues its purpose, our soul's eternal good. Calvary teaches us that God is not detached from human suffering and pain. Calvary teaches us that God through Christ has overcome human suffering and pain. Calvary teaches us that his death was real and that death itself has been conquered. Calvary teaches us that hope is not a fantasy. Hope is not a fairy tale. Jesus overcame every suffering imaginable. All hell was poured out on him seeking his destruction. He beat it. He lives. He is with us. He is for us. He is not against us. And He is coming again for us. Calvary. When we look to Calvary, we find a paralytic. When we look to Calvary, we find nearly every emotional and physical affliction that man has experienced. And when we look to Calvary, we see that God 
in human flesh and in human blood is experiencing suffering. He is not detached. And that God loves you. And that God wants to help you through all your suffering. There is a beautiful song. The words are rather moving. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground. Firm through the fiercest drought and storm, what heights of love and depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease. My comforter, my all in all. Here, in the love of Christ, I stand. I invite you who are able to stand as we sing that song today.
stand. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. The day is coming, we believe it is soon, that Jesus will return. And when he does, he will take us to an eternity with no suffering and no pain. Between now and then, we will experience suffering. We will experience pain. But we have been promised that we can experience God through it all. He will never, ever let us go through it alone. Father in heaven, I pray for these dear, dear people. I ask that you would watch over them and protect them and their families. I pray that your presence would be so profound, so real, and so powerful in their lives that their faith would be strong in you. I'm asking that you would hear their prayers and that you would answer those prayers according to your will. And Lord, we are all praying that you will save our children, our family members, our loved ones, and our friends. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.